Rarecast listeners, virtual registration for the 2021 Rare Patient Advocacy Summit is now open. Gain insights about the latest in rare disease innovations, best practices for advocating on an individual and organizational level, and actionable strategies you can implement immediately to accelerate change. Register now and learn more at globalgenes.org forward slash event forward slash patient hyphen summit. That's globalgenes.org forward slash event forward slash patient hyphen summit. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. While there's a steady stream of new gene therapies expected to be approved in the next decade, there are hundreds of diseases that could benefit from gene therapies but are not pursued by drug developers because they affect too small a population to be considered commercially viable. In an effort to change the economics of gene therapy for ultra-rare diseases, the foundation for the National Institutes of Health is establishing the Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium under its Accelerating Medicines Partnership Program. The proposed five-year, $102.5 million program involves the National Institutes of Health's National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's Center for biologics evaluation and research, and a group of commercial gene therapy developers. We spoke to P.J. Brooks, Deputy Director of the Office of Rare Diseases Research at NCATS and one of the architects of the program, about the need it's trying to address, why it's looking beyond translational science to issues including manufacturing, and, and how it hopes to accelerate the development of gene therapies for rare diseases. This episode is part of our ongoing Platforms of Hope series that explores advances in gene therapy and gene editing. PJ, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Danny. Look forward to the conversation. We're going to talk about the need for platform approaches to gene therapies for rare disease, the Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium, and, and how this extends beyond the work you've been doing through platform vector gene therapy. Uh, I'd like to start by asking you what is meant by a platform approach and the case for taking this type of approach with regard to rare diseases. Sure. So I, I think people use platform approaches in different ways, but um, what we mean here for gene therapy is that there's a there's kind of a general approach, a therapeutic platform, and specifically we're talking about AAV or adeno-associated virus gene therapy. And this is really a a way to deliver genes into cells, different types of AAVs go to different cells. And it's a platform because you can swap in different therapeutic genes fairly easily Um, I don't mean to oversimplify it, but it's a fairly straightforward thing to do. 
to put in different genes using the same sort of AV platform and thereby create, in principle, at least treatments for different diseases um, in a fairly straightforward manner. And you'd contrast this with traditional drug development where you really have to carry out a lot of studies to identify first the biochemical basis of each disease and then once you've identified the biochemical basis, you kind of have to carry out screening studies, lots and lots of screening to find small molecules that will impact those uh, biochemical abnormalities. So you kind of have to do everything from scratch, whereas the platform like AAV gene therapy, for monogenic diseases, the problem is always the same, right? You have, you have two copies of a particular gene, both of which have variants that cause the gene to not work. And so you don't have that gene function. And the solution is always the same. You need to deliver a working copy of that mutated gene to a specific cell type. And the AV uh, is a platform for doing that. When you start thinking about the, the extent of the, the challenge for developing rare disease therapies, why does that kind of an approach make sense? Well, I think, I think again, it goes back to the fact that they're mostly what we're talking about is monogenic diseases. And, and typically these are recessive diseases. So you have two mutant copies um, and you need to put a working copy in. And it's attractive because it's been quite successful in terms of you know, both preclinical studies and there are now two um, approved gene therapies using AAV in the United States, uh, a lot of preclinical success stories. So it's a platform that, that's shown to be effective in, in multiple diseases. And so I think the goal of PAVE-GT and also the Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium is try to build on that success to extend it to as many diseases as possible particularly diseases that are so small that they won't be of, of commercial interest. Any guess at to what extent this might speed up the process of delivering a, a therapeutic to a patient? Uh, I, I wouldn't want to put a number on it. I do certainly hope, though, that, that it's an explicit goal of both PAVGT and the BGTC is to speed up the process and to make as many uh, templates, if you will, available to people. So when a new group is gonna come in and try to develop a gene therapy for a new disease, they aren't starting from scratch. They have a place to start. They have templates available um, that they could use. They don't have to guess at the kind of studies that will be needed to get approval to start up their clinical trial there will be a lot more clarity. And we think by doing that, we could certainly speed up the process, but by how much I, I, I wouldn't necessarily want to guess at that. Well, before we, before we talk about the Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium, I want to touch on PAVE-GT. This is an effort to develop gene therapies for four different conditions at once using the same vector. What's mm -hmm. the ultimate goal of the program? The ultimate goal of this one really is to, to try to streamline the process and see how much, or I guess to say another way, 
every time you develop a single gene therapy, there's multiple steps you have to go through. You have to do the animal model, proof of concept. You have to make the vector. You have to, often you have to ask, where does the vector go within the body? What's called the biodistribution. You have to do toxicity testing and various analyses of the vector. And what we hope is that because we're using the same vector over and over again, the same serotype, in our case, AAV9, that it may be possible to sort of streamline, if not skip some of those steps. For example, the biodistribution question, like where does this AAV vector go within the body? That really is determined by what's on the outside of the vector and is should be independent of what's inside, which is the the DNA encoding your therapeutic gene. So if that's the case, it sort of makes sense that you wouldn't have to repeat the biodistribution study four times. Um, and But we don't know if that's true. We have to ask the FDA and they will respond to us and we'll make that information available. Similarly, some of the toxicology studies that have to be done. Perhaps there are, um, those can be reduced in some ways based on the fact that we're using the same platform, the same vector that's made in the same facility in the same reproducible way. And you know that, that's really the goal. And also to create these templates for people to use because one thing, for example, is we will be applying for INDs. These are investigational new drug applications that have to be granted by the FDA for us to go forward with a trial. And those are quite costly and complicated to prepare. And our idea is that once we've, we've submitted one and it's been approved, we can then make that available to everybody as sort of a template that they can use for their studies. And this would not only benefit the new groups trying to develop these gene theories, but I think actually would be appreciated by the FDA. I can't speak for the FDA, I wanna be very clear, but I think it, they would, it seems logical to me that that would make their life easier because they would see a sort of a standardized uh, type of IND and one that's basically uh, one that they've approved and that would, that would facilitate the process. So it's really those kind of goals. Um, I think it was about a, a year ago that we, we spoke on this program about PAVE-GT. What progress have you made? Um, we've, we've made a lot of progress in terms of the animal proof of concept studies for one of the diseases, uh, propionic acidemia. And we've had our first meeting with the FDA. This is a, an interact meeting, um, which is the, it used to be called a pre-pre-IND meeting. And that's kind of a good way to think about it, where we could ask them some questions about our, our proposed approach. And, um, so we, we, we prepared this document that we submitted to them. They reviewed it, got back to us, and then we had an hour-long telephone call where we discussed some of these issues. And I think what we're working on now is how to make that information, the document, and those discussions available to the public. And I think that will be one of our first sort of milestones for PGT is, is to follow through on what we said we were going to do, which is make this information public. So we're, we're actually in the process of, you know, writing up that material. We didn't feel like we could just take it and just dump it on the website without any kind of information to, to give it some context. So we're working on how much context to provide to help it to make it understandable to people. But that's, 
that's the kind of the progress that's been made, as well as as well as substantial progress in getting the uh, producing the clinical grade vector that we're going to use for the first trial. Have you learned anything from that work that's helped to inform the Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium? Um, well, I can say just to back up, I've certainly learned a lot from it, which is how how difficult and complicated this process is. Um, I'm not a I'm not a clinician. I've never run a clinical trial. I'm a PhD, and I've never really actually done this before. And and seeing the amount of work and effort that we've already gone into, it's really kind of striking. And I can I can. I can clearly see the need for streamlining. Let, let's put it that way. <laughs> um, in terms of informing in the bespoke gene therapy, I think, I think to some extent, but I think that the, the bespoke gene therapy effort really came about, you know, partly through PAVE-GT, but, but very much through the ideas and interest of Peter Marks at the FDA Center for Biologics. And it turns out that, that, many of the same ideas were sort of independently arrived at by both of us. And, and in, in some ways they, they may seem kind of obvious and, and nobody understands the need for streamlining better than our colleagues at the FDA. So I can certainly see potential opportunities for, for overlap and um, cross fertilization, if you will, between the two programs. I think that would be uh, a wonderful thing if it could happen. And, and one of them that comes up a lot is what sort of test do you have to do on a new batch of AAV vector to ensure that it's safe before you administer it to human beings? Um, it turns out we've learned from a meeting we had at NIH several years ago that different companies do different sets of, of tests on their vectors to demonstrate safety. I might've thought that there would be one standard set, but there isn't. And the number of tests different groups do can vary. And, you know, it, it, an idea that kind of potentially would resonate with both efforts. And I think even more broadly is if you could kind of standardize what those, a minimal set of tests that would be needed to, for a new vector to pass before it could, could go into human beings. And Please. I, go ahead. I'm sorry, no, finish. I think in saying that, and, and when I talk about streamlining, making things faster, I do want to emphasize the goal is not to do anything that is going to risk patient safety. The goal is to be sure that we aren't doing, that everything that is being done is, is what's necessary to be done. Um, and the sense is that, that maybe there are certain steps in the process of the IND process uh, where we could actually make improvements. We, we obviously want to do these, make everything faster and more efficient as much as it can be while maintaining the same level of safety that we would expect for a clinical trial that has been granted an IND by the FDA. So I do wanna make that clear. Um, we don't want to cut corners that will Im impact safety. It's, it's just trying to make things as efficient as possible. The Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium, which is under the foundation for the National Institutes of Health's Accelerating Medicine Partnership Program, strikes mm -hmm. me as more comprehensive and ambitious a program than PAVE-GT. This was 
proposes a five-year, $102.5 million effort. Do we know what the funding is yet? And what's the ultimate goal of the consortium? I think we're getting to a pretty good idea of what that funding is. We're, we're kind of finalizing that um, and hope to announce when we officially launch the program in mid-October. I can't give you a specific number now because in part, the actual process of, of raising those funds is done by the foundation for the NIH. As someone who works for the NIH, I can't be out soliciting and raising funds from private entities. So that's where the foundation for the NIH comes in because that's that's what they do and that's what they're, uh, they were set up to do. And I think the goal is, we, we often, there's really two parts to the, the Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium. One part is focused on getting a better understanding of the basic biology of AAV and so that we can improve and make in, increase the efficiency of making AAV vectors uh, in these production facilities and also perhaps improve the clinical efficacy of these uh, drugs when they go into people. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, what you might think of as the more basic biology component. And then the larger part, which is I think what most people think about of the BGTC is the set of clinical trials that will be done. Um, we anticipate somewhere between three and six clinical trials of different diseases using different AAV serotypes, but all of, all, of the, all of them being ones that have been used in clinical trials before and have been gotten approved INDs. Um, and to really see how much we can, we can make a standardized regulatory process um, for doing all three or all three to six of these clinical trials. There seems to be a really good partnership that's developed between you and Peter Marks here. Both of you were co-proposers of this along with Sang Cheng, the chief scientific officer of rare disease for Pfizer. What, what is having both regulator and industry involved at this critical level mean for accomplishing what you're trying to do? I think it means it's, it's hugely important. I, I, to be very honest, I don't know, I don't think we could have done this without the FDA's participation because I'm not sure that industry would have the same interest as they do with FDA's active participation. So I think that's hugely important. And I think also having the participation of some of these companies that make AV vectors and their willingness to participate is really gonna greatly increase the impact of the whole, of the whole effort. Um, it's, it's a very exciting and, and sometimes daunting uh, effort that we're about to embark upon here, but I'm very excited to get started because I think the potential impact is quite huge. And I really, it's really a pleasure to work, particularly with Peter. I, I've, I, I've, I've gotten to know Seng pretty well, but Peter as, and I have really worked very hard on this together along with our colleagues at the F, FNIH. And, and to see the level of interest that he has in this, I think is really 
quite an inspiration to, to everybody. Um, and I think that's what makes it as potentially impactful as, as we hope it will be. As you think about the challenges of what you're trying to do, they extend well beyond translational science and include both manufacturing and regulatory challenges. I wanted to walk through three of the challenges and have you spell them out in a little detail and talk about the consortium and what it's doing to address this. The first is understanding vector biology. What's the issue and what are you trying to do in this area? So in terms of the understanding vector biology, there's really two parts to that. There's understanding and, and really optimizing the process of making these vectors for a clinical trial use. I mean, people have been making AAVs for a long time and they've, they've come to understand quite a bit about how to do it. But a lot of the processes that are used have sort of been based on, uh, to some extent, trial and error and going with what works. And you can understand that once you've got something that works, you don't really wanna mess around with it too much. But I think what we really have appreciated is that if you dig down into the mechanistic steps that are necessary from when you um, put in all the materials to make an AV vector into human cells and start growing up those cells and getting the vector made, there's, there's several of these mechanistic steps that could potentially be optimized and even modified by things like regulating uh, genes in the host cell. And if we could optimize each one of those steps, it might be that we could increase the efficiency of making vectors in these large production facilities. And if we could change and make that more efficient by say perhaps an order of magnitude, that would greatly reduce the cost of making these materials. And so that's certainly one goal. Um, another goal is that once AVs, recombinant AV, uh, gene therapies are given to patients, we have a sense of what happens when the AAV gets into the cell and how ultimately the therapeutic gene is produced. And there are specific mechanistic steps that, that take place. And here again, I think the idea is that we could optimize and find ways to make those most efficient. And what's I think particularly exciting is the idea that we can screen already approved drugs to see if they might impact some of these mechanistic steps with the idea being that you could give a drug, you know, a pill to a patient at the same time or just before they get the gene therapy and the gene therapy become all the more efficient. Um, so those are some of the things we're trying to get at with the, the basic biology component of the uh, BGTC. A second concern is manufacturing. You touched on this a, a little just now, but what are the challenges as they pertain to manufacturing and how will they be addressed through the consortium? I take it having industry here and, and the regulators are a, a big plus. Yeah, I think there's, there's a couple answers to that. One is, as I mentioned, the idea of coming up with a standard set of analytics that we could apply to all the vectors that are made in the consortium. And that would, I think, be a, a real huge benefit because right now you kind of don't have that. Individual manufacturers analyze their own product, but here we'll have a chance to, to put a common set of analytics and all the vectors made 
by the different um, entities in the program. And that will provide, I think, very valuable information, particularly to the extent that we have adverse events and things like that will maybe in a better position to understand the causes of some of those adverse events, which again, could I think benefit the whole community. And uh, also when we'll be working with some of these companies that have made AAV vectors for clinical trials and even approved products, we'll be asking them to, to make some of a batch of vectors for one or more of the clinical trials in the BGTC and really trying to take advantage and utilize as much as possible, and this is where the FDA will come in, you know, the work that these companies have done on other products. And can that work be leveraged in making a new product? And I think those are the kind of things that we really want to find out. And that's really where the, the participation of the regulators will be essential, because I, I can't see how we could do it any other way, honestly. Well, that, that brings us to the third challenge, the regulatory challenge. What issue do you see that playing in all of this in terms of making bespoke gene therapies a reality? And how can they address the challenge of developing and producing these? I think it often comes down to the standardization, um, standardization of the analytics you'd use for a new vector. If we can identify through the BGTC a set of say between 10 and 15 analytics that are all applied to every uh, vector and come to some agreement that that set of analytics, if, if everything passes the quality controls is then safe enough to go into humans. I think that would be a great accomplishment. I'm not saying we can do it. Uh, obviously, you know, the BGTC has not even officially started yet. So I don't want to be making claims that we may not be able to attain, but I think that would be one example of something we might attain. Another one might be a standardized process for carrying out toxicology. Typically this is done in mice and maybe come up with kind of a standard uh, battery of toxicology assays, time courses and things. So, so new, new investigators won't have to guess and they won't have to you know, propose things that may ultimately not be, may not all be needed. And I think that, that again, benefits the whole, um, the whole field, if we could accomplish that. So those are a couple examples. So what is the status of the consortium today? And what's the timetable for really launching it? So we've got at least in principle, enough agreements to have, and have raised enough funds. And I say we, I always want to point out, this is the foundation for the NIH, not, not me um, and not the FDA, but the, but the FNIH has uh, raised enough funds and also enough NIH institutes have contributed and pledged to contribute funds that we feel comfortable that we will be able to launch. Um, we have posted on the FNIH website to notices of intent to uh, issue a funding opportunity. So let me explain what that is. <laughs> Essentially what we do at, at NIH, and in this case, the FNIH is when we're going to, to put out a funding opportunity, 
usually once that funding opportunity is is put out there's a there's a limited time like 60 days or so between the the time that it's announced and the time when the applications are due and sometimes that's not very much time but but by putting out an announcement of an intention to to um, publish a funding opportunity we can basically get people thinking about it they can start preparing they can start getting the you know, think about the materials they need. They can start making collaborations and contacts and, and setting up, um, you know, getting together with collaborators so that when the actual funding opportunity does arise, they can look at the specifics and they will be able to hit the ground running, so to speak. And so having done that and putting that out in public, I mean, we obviously would not have done that if we didn't feel like we were in a pretty good position to be able to go forward with the the program. So that's basically where it is. And I think the official launch is we're anticipating now sometime in around the middle of October. Ultimately, uh, I know we're just starting this, but what do you think this will do to change the landscape for gene therapies and for ultra rare diseases and beyond? I certainly hope that it will make it all more efficient and the net result will be that there will be more clinical trials of gene therapies for disease of no commercial interest um, than there are now. That, that process of trying to get these clinical trials open, which seems so daunting and frankly is pretty daunting, will become less daunting. And, and uh, more than that, I think there may be additional benefits of this, some of this regulatory streamlining could even impact uh, gene therapy for diseases that are of commercial interest. I mean, I think, I think the company partners would all like that. And I think that's certainly a possibility. Um, we've also been seeing now sort of other efforts starting to uh, begin kind of doing the same kind of things and which I think is kind of wonderful. It would be great if we could get as those efforts go forward not just PAVGT and the BGTC, but others, if we get more you know, data sharing and collaboration and it's a best case scenario, um, I may be a bit naive in that regard, but I think that would be a good outcome. And I also think that some of what will be achieved here, some of the learnings that we, we get from this effort, you know, it's not always, it's not gonna be bump free as people say. I mean, I think we'll, we'll learn, Sometimes you learn things by learning what didn't work. But I think some of the learnings about how you can streamline this process may also be applicable to other types of genetic therapies, such as genome editing, for example, which is something that we're also very interested in, which is not anticipated to be part of the BGTC. This is just, not say just, but this is gene therapy and not gene editing, but some of the same principles of streamlining and a standardized toxicology package, I think could, could be uh, applicable beyond AAV gene therapy, maybe also to lentiviral gene therapy, for example. PJ Brooks, Deputy Director of the Office of Rare Diseases Research at the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences, the National Institutes of Health. PJ, thanks as always. Thanks, Danny. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening. 
For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com. 